There was an article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal this week, and the title of it was this, Is Google Replacing God? Is Google Replacing God? And the article states this, A recent report in MIT Technology Review suggests a correlation between increased internet use and decline in religious affiliation, a decline of 25 million people between 1990 and 2010. Alan Downey is a professor of engineering at Olin College, and he believes that as much as 25% of that decline in affiliation can be explained by this new habit of internet use. He's not arguing that the internet caused the decline, only that it occurred alongside it and might help explain it. Endless opportunities to do things online might translate into less time engaged in face-to-face activities in one's religious community, such as attending Bible study or services. Some people argue that declining religious affiliation is a social improvement, evidence of the clarifying tonic of rationality brought about by our global information revolution. Let's be honest. Who or what are we more likely to place our faith in on a daily basis? God or Google? It's a good question. The journalist ends the article with this question. In relying on the internet to answer questions, do we risk losing access to some of the answers data can't provide? Do we? Do you? The answer to that question when I read this article, for me, came immediately in the form of a memory. And I was transported back in time to the little country church where I grew up, and our Sunday night sings. On Sunday nights, we were allowed to sing songs that we weren't normally allowed to sing in a Sunday morning Presbyterian worship service. Presbyterians are a little uptight sometimes. You ever notice that? (laughs) Anyway, Sunday nights, we could sing... Whatever, and I guarantee you that the singing was much more robust on Sunday nights. But we used to love to sing this song, and it seemed to me to come from the heart. The old gospel song, Where Could I Go But To The Lord? Where could I go, oh, where could I go, seeking a refuge for my soul? Where could I go but to the Lord? That song, of course, is just echoing the answer that Peter gave Jesus. When Jesus looked at the twelve disciples... So many others had deserted him, left him, stopped following him. He looked at the disciples and said, what about you? Will you leave me as well? And Peter's reply was, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So yes, there is much to which Google cannot provide answers or access for us. And if you and I could be in the place where Peter was, having looked around, having seen that there really is ultimately no one or no other place to go except the Lord, you and I would be in a good place. And we would be in the same place that we find Moses this morning in the passage that we have before us. And that is a place of prayer. Finding access to God. Knowing that God and God alone can provide for us what no one else can. And so in the the passage for this morning... Moses' actions throw down a challenge to us. Do we care enough to pray? How well do we know the one to whom we pray? And what difference does that make in the way we pray? These are some things we need to consider this morning as we come to this passage.
So if you have your Bibles open to Deuteronomy chapter 9, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Reading this morning from chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. And this is Moses speaking. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain, out of the fire, on the day of the assembly. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people. They are stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. And so I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire. The two stone tablets of the covenant were in my hands. And when I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord commanded you. So I took the two stone tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. Then once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread. I drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so provoking him to anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time, I prayed for Aaron too. And also took that sinful thing of yours, that calf you had made, and burned it in the fire. And I crushed it and ground it to powder, as fine as dust, and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. And then verse 25. I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord said he would destroy you. But I prayed to the Lord and said, O sovereign God, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, Because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them. Because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the desert. But they are your people, your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Let's pray together. Father, now we ask that you would bless, as you promised to do, bless the reading and the hearing of your word. We pray now, the Spirit of God, that you would intercede on our behalf, as we come to your word, open our eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand your truth. And then, Spirit, would you apply them to our lives, transforming us, making us more the people that you desire for us to be. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. I want us to begin this morning by talking about being prepared, being prepared for prayer. Uh, 
The passage that we have read contains two different occasions of Moses going up on Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, to to pray before the Lord. The first occasion that Moses retells starts in verse 9. It's when God called him up to receive uh, the covenant that God was making with the people, which took the form of those two stone tablets upon which God had written the Ten Commandments. What must those 40 days and 40 nights have been like for Moses, the man, to be in the presence of the one and only true and living God? Scripture tells us that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. What must those conversations have been like? Scripture tells us that when Moses came down the mountain with those two tablets of stone, he was not aware that his face was radiant. It glowed because he had spoken with the Lord. In fact, Scripture tells us that every time Moses entered the presence of the Lord to speak with him, his face was radiant with the glory of the Lord. What must the nature of the presence of the Lord be like? If the glory of the Lord literally lights up whoever and whatever is in its presence. See, this is the unchanging God into whose presence you and I enter. What difference should it make in your life and my life knowing this about the nature of God's presence, the glory of it, when we come to Him in prayer? We also read in verse 9 that during those 40 days and those 40 nights, Moses fasted. He neither ate bread nor drank water. Why is it that Moses fasted in the presence of God? It doesn't appear that God required it of him. It doesn't appear that God commanded Moses, you shall fast. In fact, in Exodus 24, which takes place right in the midst of all this Mount Sinai activity, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu... And the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of glory. They saw God and they ate and they drank in the presence of God. So what about being in the presence of God this time? Indicated to Moses that he should fast. Did Moses have to force himself to fast? Or was being in the presence of the Lord so overwhelming? Was being in the presence of the Lord so all-consuming and so satisfying to Moses that he didn't even think about food? Did the heaviness of, of this holy moment, the voice of God speaking to him, the finger of God writing on these stone tablets, did it make food seem profane? Or maybe just a troublesome intrusion? Maybe food and something to drink seemed out of place. Surely, Moses, by this time, realized the weight of the responsibility of the office to which he had been called by God. Moses alone was called here to come into the presence of God. Moses alone was allowed to speak to God. And so perhaps Moses fasted to be better prepared, to be faithful, to be effective in what God had called him to do. Now, you and I, we worry and prepare, we prepare and we worry and we worry and we prepare. 
You know, if we have an interview with the boss, the supervisor, the chief of staff, what will we say? How will we come across? We want to present ourselves just right. So why do we not feel the desire to do even more as we come into the presence of God, even if God doesn't require it of us? This isn't about obligation. What we have to do, it's about awareness. You and I are being aware of the holiness of God. It's about us being aware of the weightiness of the privilege that we have to come into the presence of God. This is about preparation. Doing what we can do to put ourselves in a place to know better the character of God. To know more the holiness of God. To know more the weightiness of the privilege that we have to come into the presence of God. Maybe we are too often too casual about coming into the Lord's presence. Scripture says clearly that we are friends of God. But that doesn't mean that our present culture gets to define what friend is as chilling with God, hanging out with my homie. That's how we define friendship, but true friendship is weightier than that. It's true. But God tells us in His Word that we have permission to call Him Abba. The intimate term for father. But that doesn't mean that our culture gets to define that intimacy or that we should address him as a college friend of mine always did as, hey pops, no kidding. Every time this friend prayed, hey pops. Jonathan Edwards is a famous 18th century Puritan preacher. I'm sure you know his name. He is credited as being the man that God used in the 1730s to to bring about the first great awakening in America. He's acknowledged to be America's most important and original philosophical theologian and one of America's greatest intellectuals. He's a man who loved the gospel and he loved to preach the gospel to everyone, truly to every tribe and tongue and nation. Jonathan Edwards had 11 children and all 11 of them lived to adulthood, which was very unusual in that day. Jonathan Edwards loved his children. And his children loved him intimately. But in spite of that intimate, loving relationship, listen, his children stood whenever he entered the room. Such was their love and respect for this father that loved them and for this father that they loved so dearly. That's how they understood Abba Father. So flippancy, lack of respect, never transgressed never transgressed the borders of this intimate, loving relationship. And neither should it transgress our relationship with God. An intimate relationship with God does not mean that we are on His level. Never, never will any one of us be equal to God. It's true that Jesus, our friend, He condescended to come to earth to be like us. And what do we call that? We call that his humiliation. Doing that for us. But he didn't stay here. He returned to his place with his father. That we call his exaltation. And in heaven, he sits at the right hand of the father. A place of glory and honor. We call that his session. 
He's glorious. He is glorious. And so the action of Moses here on the mountain should cause us to reflect on and evaluate our relationship with God. It should cause us to reflect on our view of prayer. Do we truly realize the holiness of God? Do we truly feel the weight, the heaviness of prayer? It seems to me to be a very weighty thing when Jesus comes to Simon Peter and says to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. Tear you apart. But I've prayed for you. That seems a weighty thing. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. We need to take prayer seriously. And so I'm suggesting this morning is that you and I do what we can to put ourselves in a better place to be effective in prayer. Like Moses, fasting on the mountain, prepared himself to be an intercessor for the people. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, The power, excuse me, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, James sticks that adjective in there, righteous. Now, I know that all who have come to faith in Christ, we are all made righteous in Christ. But James in this verse seems to be using righteous uh, a little bit differently to describe a subset of Christians. People who know the Lord, who truly, who truly are committed to living a right life before God. People who are committed to living a life of faithfulness. Those people, their prayers are effective. Otherwise, James could have just said the prayer of a Christian is powerful and effective. You know, we always want someone else to be that righteous person that prays. It really is true. You know, oh, well, don't ask me to pray. That person, they're righteous. Their prayers would be better than mine. But why should it not be each one of us? Why should we not prepare ourselves to be effective prayers? I'm not saying any of this to discourage any one of us from praying. Because you believe you have to make yourself something better than you already are before you can come to God. I am not saying that at all. Anyone can come before the Lord and, and, and utter an honest prayer at any time. What I'm talking about here is life-changing, world-changing prayer. I'm talking about interceding for the lost. I'm talking about praying for and interceding for this neighborhood in which we find ourselves. This city in which God has placed us. What are you doing to prepare yourself to be an intercessor for them? How seriously do you take that role? Or do you prefer, as most people, and even I, on many occasions, prefer to abdicate that responsibility to someone else? I don't speak of the holiness of God or the weightiness of prayer to drive a wedge between us and God and to create this distance between us. That's not what we should do and that's not what God wants us to do. I just say it so that we are mindful, you and I, of whose presence we enter. So that you and I are filled with humility that God invites us into his presence. 
that were filled with joy, that one like he is, welcomes ones like we are. That we would be filled with awe that we can hear from and be provided for by one as awesome and powerful as God is. These are the things that should be on our hearts and minds when we come into the presence of the Lord to pray. These are the truths that should encourage us to do what we can do to be well prepared prayers. As we move on this morning, I want us to consider this, not only being prepared to pray, but knowing the character of the one into whose presence we come. The second benefit, I think, of Moses fasting on the mountain before the Lord is that this time with the Lord deepened Moses' understanding of the character of God. Think about what transpired between them when they were on the mountain. While Moses and God are together, giving and receiving uh, the covenant, down below the people are sinning blatantly and with abandon. They're gathered around that golden calf, worshiping, reveling around it, laughing, mocking, making sport, being sexually immoral. And in his justified anger at the behavior of these faithless people, to whom he has shown so much love and for whom he has made such miraculous provision over and over, God says to Moses, you can read it in verse 14, let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. Now, why is it that Moses did not leave God alone as God asked him to do? Why did not Moses not say, yes, Lord, right away, Lord, I, I, I'm leaving you alone. Why is it that instead of closing his mouth, shh, being quiet, God has made this proclamation. Did Moses begin to pray in verse 26? Oh, sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power. How would Moses know that he could say such a thing to God? And why did Moses not hear God's words as a done deal, but instead as an invitation to come and to mediate and intercede between God and these terribly faithless people? Is this what the fasting had prepared Moses to do? What did Moses learn about the character of God during those 40 days and 40 nights of solitude on the mountain that he knew that he could say such things to God. Something, something caused Moses to know that he could engage in this conversation with God. Something caused Moses to know that God's grace and God's mercy and God's compassion could prevent God from doing what he was perfectly justified in doing, which was destroying those people. Something caused Moses to know that he could pray on behalf of these people and ask God to do something other than God said he was going to do. Moses knew that he could take that risk. I wonder what we might learn about God if we shared Moses' attitude, if not his specific act of fasting for 40 days, but just his attitude. 
And what might you and I learn about the character of God if we weren't always taking up all the verbal space when we pray? Yak, 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 yak. I know I have more questions this morning than answers. I've probably asked 50 already. But sometimes that's what happens when you ponder and you meditate on an infinite God. You have a lot of questions. But maybe this next question is the one for which we most want an answer. Because the answer to this next question has an enormous impact on our prayer life. If we pray, how much we pray, why we bother to pray, what we expect from God in prayer. And the question is this. Would God really have destroyed those people if Moses had not prayed? Would God really have destroyed those people if Moses had not prayed? Did Moses' prayer make God change his mind? Is God sovereign? Or must God act or change his plan according to human choices? See, God's sovereignty and human responsibility seem antinomic. They do. They are completely separated. They seem paradoxical. Individually, both of them seem perfectly reasonable. Scripture teaches us clearly that God is sovereign. I'll establish that. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Hebrews 1, chapter 3, tells us that he upholds the universe by the power of his word, by the word of his power. Acts 17, 28 tells us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Jesus, speaking about his own father in Matthew 10, 29, tells us that even though two sparrows can be bought for one penny, insignificant, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. I like the New Living Translation of this verse. We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. Clearly, our God, the God of Scripture, is a sovereign God. He determines everything that happens before it comes to pass. Now, people are free to make their own judgments about that truth. They're free to not like God because they think sovereignty is a bad thing. But they can't change that truth. God is sovereign. And no matter what you think about the sovereignty of God, nevertheless, it seems reasonable that a God who is omnipotent, a God who is omniscient, a God who is omnipresent would also be absolutely sovereign. It makes sense. Conversely, It seems perfectly reasonable, and it's born out of our experience every single day of our lives that we have our own wills and we use them. Though it is true that a husband told me just this week that he believed in free will until he got married. (laughs) And that man's name shall remain a secret. (laughs) 
but you know who you are. We are responsible. We are, we are responsible for our own actions and our own behavior. We are not robots. We are not automatons. Everywhere, Scripture puts choice before us. Adam and Eve had the choice of trees from which to eat. Near the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. Lord, will we ever get to chapter 30 in Deuteronomy? We may all be dead before we get there. But Moses says this. This day I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Choose life. Moses' successor, Joshua, stands before the same nation at the end of his life. And he says this, if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served or the gods of the Amorites, but as for me and my house, here's our choice. We will serve the Lord. That's the choice before us. Obedience, disobedience, faithfulness, unfaithfulness. The choice between the way of life or the way of death, Scripture calls us to make right choices. And God would not call us, His people, to choose if those choices weren't really possible. In line with this idea is that Scripture everywhere calls us to pray. To pray about all things. To pray at all times. In fact, Scripture says to pray without ceasing. Lamentations 2.19 says, Arise, cry out in the night, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. And so prayer is a reasonable thing to do when you have an all-powerful God that can answer. But if God is sovereign, what difference do our prayers make? This is always the question. It seems that God's responsibility... That God's sovereignty and human responsibility or, or, or our free will will never come together. That they'll never be reconciled. The famous philosopher Immanuel Kant, he used antinomy to speak of two valid conclusions. Two valid conclusions that appeared to contradict each other. But that could be resolved when it was seen that they are from two distinct and exclusive sets. So no paradox exists, only the inappropriate application of an idea from one set being applied to another causes a seeming paradox. Since we know that no flaw exists in a perfect God, there can be no flaw in God's sovereignty or in his decision to give us wills with which we make choices. And so if there appears to be a problem, if there appears to be a contradiction, it's only in our inappropriate understanding or application of each truth. Here is a a for instance. You and I cannot fathom being outside of time. That is our set. That's where we live. We are time-bound people. God, on the other hand, is timeless. He is not bound by time in any way. He is eternal. That's his set. We are time-bound. God is timeless. And so we can't apply time restraints to God. We can't even apply chronological restraints to him who is timeless. Even though you and I are completely bound 
by time. It's all we know. And so it's just possible, with apologies to Google and Siri, that we don't know or understand all there is to know. I heard this illustration over 20 years ago that helped me with sovereignty and human responsibility. So here it is. Look over the ceiling. And just pick these two lights and and imagine instead of lights there that there are two holes in the ceiling. And out of this light over here is coming a rope. And we're going to call that rope God's sovereignty. And over here coming out of this hole is a rope. And we're going to call that rope human responsibility or our free... You're not looking up at the ceiling. Look up at the ceiling. How are you going to do this if you're not looking? Up here. So here's God's sovereignty and here is human responsibility. The two of them are hanging down. They're never going to touch each other. Gravity is not going to prevent that. So how will the two ever come together? How will they be ever, ever anything but completely separate? Well, because of what we don't see. Because on the other side of the ceiling, in the church attic... There is this big pulley. And so it appears to us to be two separate ropes is actually one rope. One in the same rope. And so in a way that you and I cannot understand, in a way that we cannot see, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, they work together as one. I don't know how. So our understanding of all this, or our lack of understanding of all of this, is one of the weaknesses that Paul talks to us about in Romans chapter 8. Do you still have your Bibles open? Will you turn to Romans chapter 8? Flip, flip, turn, pages, Romans chapter 8. And when you've gone to Romans chapter 8, look at verses 26 and 27. They say that in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. See, because you and I are human, we have this native weakness, frailty, feebleness. And this weakness entered our spiritual bones and our spiritual joints and our spiritual tissue at the time of the first sin. And this weakness diminished the minds that had been used to functioning apart from sin. And who knows what the capacity of a sinless mind could have been. We don't know that. But in this passage in Romans, the frailty, the lack of this requisite capacity is connected specifically to knowledge, what we know or what we don't know. Our weakness prevents us from completely understanding God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And so our weakness prevents us from understanding how we should pray. It prevents us from knowing what we should pray And so where's our hope? It's in the Spirit of God. These verses say the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit intercedes for us with groans. Groans, which again speaks to the weightiness of prayer. Groans that words cannot express. 
The Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And so here it is all together. God is sovereign, yet we are to pray. And the Spirit makes those prayers in harmony with God's will. On the other side of the ceiling, in a way that I can't see or understand. But here's the good news. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. (laughs) Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that good news? We're weak, we're frail, we do not understand perfectly, and we sin accordingly. And our weakness has robbed us of the ability to know God fully as we are fully known by Him. No more do we walk and talk with God in the cool of the evening as Adam and Eve did in the garden before the fall. That kind of communication, that kind of understanding is gone. And in light of that, even the strongest among us is weak and only going to limp home. Like the pictures that all of us have seen of the soldier at war's end returning home with one arm in a sling and the other hand holds a cane. And he drags that injured, wounded leg behind him all the way home. So are we. We're weak. We're infirm as we make our way to heaven. But we are not condemned or cast off because of that weakness. Because therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is secure and certain. So let's go back to Moses' prayer. In verse 26, Moses prays, O Sovereign Lord, Yahweh Adonai. Moses only uses this name for God one other time. It's also in Deuteronomy. In chapter 3, verse 24, where he is also addressing God in prayer. And in his commentary on this name for God, Peter Peter Craigie writes that this name recognizes God's lordship and sovereign power. God's lordship and sovereign power is in that name. But it also is indicative of the deeply personal tone of the request Moses brings to the Lord. There it is. The sovereignty of God and the will and the desire of Moses. Apparently, he was able to blend beautifully God's sovereignty and the desire of his own heart. The Spirit of God brought those two together. And so, I have more questions. Did the Spirit of God inspire Moses to pray this prayer of mediation for his people? Because it was God's purpose to demonstrate from the very beginning of their history as a nation that they would need then and would forever need a mediator, an intercessor to pray on their behalf? Was God giving us a picture way back then of who Jesus would be and what Jesus would do perfectly? I don't know the answer to that question. Nor do I understand what Moses understood or didn't understand. But I can see what Moses did. Moses prayed. And God did not destroy. That's all I know. That's all you know. Moses prayed and God did not destroy. I see what Moses does in this dimension of prayer. He fasts. I see that there is a weightiness to prayer. 
the seriousness about it. I see that Moses knows and calls on the character of God and his faithfulness in his prayer. And I know that the Lord our God is great. And I know that he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so I know that you and I, we should be people of prayer. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we do need your spirit. Whether we often acknowledge it, we need your spirit to intercede for us whenever we come into your presence. We come so often with so many wrong thoughts and wrong ideas about ourselves and about you. And that's because of this inherent weakness in us, Lord. And so always we need your spirit to communicate uh, for us and with us and with you. Pray, Lord, that your spirit would impress upon all of us the need to pray. The call is clear from your word in every place for your people to call on your name. And so where there is prayerlessness in our lives and prayerlessness in our church, we pray that you would forgive us for not doing what you have called us to do. Father, where we've taken prayer lightly, we've been flippant about our relationship with you, we pray for forgiveness as well. Lord, we pray that your spirit would define friendship with you. That your spirit would define for us what it means to call you Abba, Father. That your spirit would give us joy in the relationship that we can have with you. But great humility as well as we realize your holiness and your glory and your splendor every time we enter your presence. Father, keep us humble to always put your will before our own. We don't know what we should pray. We know that you tell us to make our requests known before you. Then, Lord, help us to leave those requests at your feet for you to answer in accordance with your own divine and glorious will. Father, remind us of your omnipotence. You come into the presence of one who is all-powerful. Make us zealous, Lord, in our intercession, not just for ourselves, but for others. Make us zealous as we intercede, Lord, for the people that surround this church building just outside these walls who don't know you, who are on a road to death and destruction. Make us zealous, Lord, to pray for them, for the people like them all over this city. Convict us of our need, Lord, not to abdicate this to someone else, but to take up this call in our own lives, in our own hearts, to intercede for the lost, for the lost around the world. You're an omnipotent God. 
the God of love and justice and mercy. Lord, calls us to be intercessors for people who need to experience that love and that justice and that mercy. They're all around us in this city. Lord, convict us of the blessing that we have to come into your presence in prayer. And then, Lord, help us prepare ourselves to be faithful and effective prayers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.